0: Having a Gas is the podcast that talks the great and the good of the creative industries and in particular finds out what makes great music for film, for TV, for commercials, for dancing to, for cooking to, for f***ing to, and more. Today, I'm having a guest with Andrew Schepps, a Grammy award-winning producer and mix engineer who has worked on many classic albums, such as By The Way by Red Hot Chili Peppers, Beyonce's eponymous album, and 21 by Adele. Andrew, why don't you throw some more names in there that I can't remember? (laughs) No, that's embarrassing enough already. That's great. Well,
1: no, at every opportunity, I like to mention Low Roar, who's a band on my label that I'm really involved with. So we'll add Low Roar to the list. Wonderful. Well, um, have you got an album you recommend for people? Um, Well, I love them all. They're all my children. Um... Yeah, I don't know. There are four studio albums out now. I'd say you could start with the second one uh, that's titled Zero, just the number Zero, but we've just finished a new one called Maybe Tomorrow that'll be
0: out at the end of July that is uh, spectacular, I think. Wonderful stuff. That's uh, July 2021 for the benefit of anyone on YouTube a few years down the line. Um, and we were just, before I hit record, uh, uh, having a little gas about the fact that, uh, Andrew, you're in uh, England right now and, and you were telling me why you're in England. Yes. Well, I'm here because I live here. So that's <laughs> it's a good reason to be somewhere. Yes. Uh, my
1: wife is English and we live five minutes from where she grew up out in the beautiful countryside in
0: Worcestershire. Yeah, it is, um... There, that, that part of the world, there's something just nourishing to the soul about it, isn't it? You know, tranquil, beautiful.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, it's the Shire. Yeah. it literally is
0: the Shire. And was, it, it was that part was of your something. requirements. You want to feel like you are there. <laughs> well, no, my requirements mostly involve pubs, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, Good. it doesn't help. And where did you grow up?
1: I grew up on Long Island. I was born in Ohio. Then we moved to New York when I was, um, I don't know, eleven. Is that right? No, nine, something like that. So I grew up on Long Island uh, all the way through high school, then went to school in Miami, and then
0: uh, from there, yeah, elsewhere. Yeah, so when when did you uh, first notice you were fascinated with sound? Last week I spoke to Yoad Nevo, and mm-hmm. uh, he was saying he started pulling cables apart when he was about 10 or something like that. I would pull things apart from a young age, I think, as most
1: small children do. Um, I was just, I was kind of interested in everything and how stuff worked. and But I always loved listening to music. I played music um, as a brass player, so not, not in any bands or anything. But I always loved listening to music. And I started sort of thinking about how records are being made, I guess, in my very early teens but then didn't see a recording studio until I was in high school. But I would do lights for productions in high school and junior high and things. So anytime I could push a button and something else would happen, that was exciting to me.
0: Now, I had a very similar experience at school being on the sort of technical crew. And did you also have the privilege of being able to skip lessons? Um, You know, I don't even remember. Probably. Yeah, probably. <laughs> cool. And so what... Uh, how did you make the transition from doing that to getting your first gig in a studio as an assistant or as an apprentice what when was the the moment you began the trajectory you're on now
1: well I the studio structure was still very much in place I got out of college in 1988 so normally you would go from there to get a job. In a studio, because I I went to University of Miami, and actually got a degree in recording. It was part of the music school, but it's a it's a four year recording degree. Um, but I actually ended up sort of going sideways for a bit and got a job with a manufacturer of this digital audio workstation thing, one of the first, uh, the Synclavier, which that with the Fairchild and the Waveframe and some of the PPG stuff to a point was sort of the first kind of digital synthesis and then sampling and then disc recording units out there. So I did that. And because of that, I ended up on sessions either just to make sure the Synclovirs kept working because my job was to fix them, or then later on programming them. So I was never an assistant employed at a studio. I always came in to do something else and was on sessions because of that.
0: So what's the, um, for the, for the benefit of our uh, viewers who are producers, who, who make stuff, what's the Synclavia analogous to? Is it most like the digital audio workstation in a physical form?
1: Yeah, kind of. I mean, it started life as a, an FM synthesizer. That was the first thing it was. So a precursor to the DX10 and all of those Yamaha FM synths. Then they added Uh, monophonic sampling, so you could actually sample audio, but you could only play back one sample at a time, and so when you played a sample, it would cut off whatever it was playing. Then that graduated into polyphonic sampling, so that would be like any sampler anyone has ever used, software or hardware, and then they added disc recording, Um, so for a colossal amount of money, you could have a 16-track disc recorder that basically you could do
0: basic editing on, and that was it. And so, um, the... Is obviously a tremendous difference with how one picks up the skills now. So this was uh, 1988, 89 when you were learning that, and of course my journey you will not be surprised by at all, which was you know downloading Logic when I was about 18, figuring out how a channel strip works, and you learn on your own on your laptop or from YouTube, watching tutorials by yourself or other or mix engineers, and uh, I suppose people can now have. Um, a great deal of experience before they even get anywhere near a studio and presumably that wasn't on offer in the late 80s. How would the younger you have felt knowing uh, if if he knew what we had to look forward to, let's say?
1: I don't know. I mean, because I don't regret anything about the way I did it. I loved going to school for it. First of all, I like to know how things work. I hate not understanding why something does what it does. So the opportunity to go learn about the electronics and the acoustics and the physics behind it and actually fix gear as part of that. Like when the stuff broke in the studio, the students were part of the maintenance team and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I'm really happy about that. I'm happy I got the chance to work on tape, though I don't miss that at all. <laughs> um, but just to sort of understand, because when you look at most of the DAWs now, they're all based on consoles and tape machines in a way. Tape machine less than console, but the mix window of any DAW is a console, period. So to understand the signal flow and things like that, I think was great. And I think one of the dangerous things now is the quality control of the information you're gonna get. And a lot of the good information is behind a paywall. You know, there are a lot of great sites, but that you need to subscribe to to really get to the information. And they need to do that because it costs a lot of money to produce this stuff. But it means that for a lot of people, just like people, young kids are gonna use crack plugins, they're also gonna get free videos and they're not interested in paying. And it doesn't matter if you say, well, but if you paid some money and watch these videos, you would know more than if you watch these free videos. Like, well, but I'll watch these for free and I'll know stuff. Yes. So you do it. So in a way, it's more difficult because obviously, like, I could have had a bad teacher at school and that would have sucked. But there were textbooks. You're... Like, there's only so far wrong you can go when you have a very limited set of equipment that you have to use to get something done. Like, you're going to learn how that works. Whereas with the software side of it, it's also infinitely variable that you could learn to make records a million different ways right now. And all of them are legit, but you can also learn some horrendous habits. There's so many videos. Are basically, just my piece of advice on that is: any video that in the title says "tricks" or "secrets," just don't watch it. Because
0: <laughs> there are fear? none. There's there no are, such thing. Are you of the school of thought that there's no, yeah, there's no secrets. There is only experience and time.
1: Yeah, it's look. When I first started doing uh, seminars and teaching classes at schools, I taught a class at UCLA for a while. You start by thinking like, man, but if I tell them what I do, then they'll just take my gig, (laughs) right? Because it's it's as simple as that. And then you also start to think if you own some bits of gear, like, well, that's why you're getting the work and things like that. But it's nothing to do with it. I mean, anyone who's been making music for a while knows that everybody on the planet just hears stuff differently. And it's the way you hear and the way you learn to turn what you're hearing into what you want to hear. That's what people do who make records and write songs and do anything with sound.
0: Now, I'd like to get your uh, thoughts on what I believe to be some of the dangers of learning in this kind of uh, ad hoc, Wild West, uh, cracked door fashion that many of us learn on now. And uh, I think one of them is the belief that if you have, you know James Blake, of course, don't you? Mm-hmm. He said something cool on Instagram recently. He said, uh, "Think of uh, it's it's all about chords, not plugins." And I inferred what he meant by that is, um, if the music isn't good, don't be deceived into thinking because you have a hundred plugins, you can sculpt it into a good sound. And for a long time, that's what I was certainly trying to do. If I had a crappy snare sound, I'd think, well, I can just whack an EQ on that and then I'll turn it into a good one. And so I think that's the kind of thing that, if forgive me, if you were learning in a controlled environment in a, with proper teachers like you did, they would notice that bad habit quicker and steer you, right. you know, they would put you right. I don't know what... Yeah, to a point. I think
1: it's also... One of the most dangerous things is that you have an infinite tool set when you're just grabbing stuff off the internet and you can have 50,000 snare samples. Yes. So you could spend a month trying to find the right snare for that song, even though the problem is the song, not the snare. Yeah. And when you've got a really limited tool set, then you learn how to be creative and you actually are responding to the music itself because you can't go down a rabbit hole. So one of the pieces of advice I give young people trying to learn to mix specifically, let's say, is you're only allowed to use stock plugins. And in fact, you're only allowed one EQ and one compressor and one reverb. Maybe you're allowed a delay or a distortion plugin, but like you pick one or the other, but that's it. And really try mixing this with just volume and pan. Yeah. And see how good you can make it sound. And like, unfortunately, um, yesterday we actually lost one of the greatest recording engineers ever in the history of recording engineers. Al Schmidt died yesterday. He does not use EQ or compression when he's recording. When he's mixing, he's got four reverbs, two limiters, one on the bass, one on the vocal, and a stereo EQ and a three band limiter on the mix bus. That's it. Mm. Nothing else. And he's won more Grammys for engineering than anybody else ever will because his record sounds so incredible. And so the idea that you do as little as possible and then when you get it right in that very simple context, it actually is better in most cases than an
0: unbelievably complicated mix that actually works. Yes. And so um, what do you think about the notion that uh, it helps for engineers mix or recording to at least have uh, you You know you said you were a horn player is that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when you were a kid to so at least have some musical experience on a single instrument because my suspicion is that that disciplines you into a a, a way of thinking that you know you only have the instrument that you have I'm a piano player hence why I'm reaching in a sort of keys way Um, and you can't add more things in order to enhance let's say the dynamics it has to all come from one place Uh, do do you think it helps when producers and engineers have you know at least some uh, instrumental experience of their own
1: Yeah, and I don't, I hadn't really thought about it the way you just put it, and that could certainly be part of it. But to me, the reason, and I know plenty of amazing producers and engineers who have absolutely no musical knowledge whatsoever, but they're really, really good at what they do. But for me, it's as a recording engineer, it's the ability to empathize with the people out there playing instruments, to understand what it is to be alone in a studio with a bunch of people through a window looking at you while you're supposed to be singing. yeah, That's gotta be the most terrifying experience on the planet for a vocalist. And a lot of vocalists are very self-conscious and not self-confident anyway. So to understand that and to get when a guitar player is having trouble doing something, that just saying like, come on, man, do it. That's not gonna help. Mm -hmm. And doing that, and then also just being able to talk to the band in musical terms about where you're going to be punching in or the chorus or just understanding musical form. I think all that helps. But like I say, there are people who are fantastic at doing this, who don't do that. So you don't need it. But for
0: me, I'm really glad I have it. It certainly helps. Um, Yeah, I, 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 absolutely. I was uh, thinking what came to mind when you were saying, you know, it helps to be able to tell people where to punch in and things like that. I was remembering in um, uh, the fourth chapter of the Defiant Ones, you know, about Interscope and uh, Jimmy Iovine and Dre. Uh, Dr. Dre is uh, giving uh, fee- session feedback in terms of bars. He's saying, okay, so we're going to go into bar three and then you come in on bar four. And I, you know, I that's... that's uh, made me realize that he has a great degree of musical knowledge because a, a lot of people, particularly in the door world, who I've seen come in and start sort of pointing at blocks and say that bit and then that bit. But yeah, you can see with the the best of the best, often there's a degree of musical knowledge. But again, not always. We're not trying to be exclusive here.
1: Yeah. Yeah, but you can have musicality without the vocabulary.
0: Yes. So <laughs> um, so you something piqued my interest there because you said that um, a lot of vocalists are very self-conscious. Is it your experience that there are some vocalists who are extraordinary singers and have been on, you know, uh, best-selling records who nonetheless would surprise you to find that they are quite self-conscious in the booth?
1: Yeah, I mean, it it could be self-conscious in the um, not, not confident form of being self-conscious but it can also just be that they need to be in a place to perform and it's very easy to get distracted and pulled out of that place so uh, it can kind of go either way but yeah i mean fantastic singers like chris cornell sang by after the first audio slave record i think he tracked all his own vocals from then on because it was just easier he could stay in the zone and he could do it and he didn't have to explain that at the end of a take, he wanted to just sit for a second and not talk. And then, okay, now he's ready to go again. And he didn't want to have to say, okay, I'm ready now. Like, it just wanted to happen
0: and be the flow that it needed to be. How was he, he tracking his vocals? Was this sort of early digital, you know, side? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. this would
1: have been into into Pro Tools, where he's just set up, you know, and like he knows how to make playlists and he just sings.
0: So yeah. So that presumably is happening uh, more and more now that we have this um, way of learning that we've been talking about that, you know, anyone can get door. anyone can get plugins, basically anyone can get a microphone or an interface now. So are you finding that uh, in sessions these days, artists are more knowledgeable and more experienced uh, with the process of recording than maybe they were in 88?
1: Yeah, probably. I mean, because everybody... Not everybody, but most people who write music at least are doing GarageBand band demos of it on their phone. Yeah. You know, which is a full-blown DAW, and you can open those things up in Logic if you want and continue to work and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think everybody has some sort of knowledge of it. But at the same time, whenever I get into a situation where I can actually be in a studio with musicians and things like that, I mean, a lot of them are geeks about it and they've, they own some gear and they want to know like, hey, what do you use? You know, what do you think about this? And so you have these conversations about it, but in the moment of recording, not at all. They're pure musician at that point and they're not thinking about what mics you've decided to use on them and how you're recording them or whatever. It, they really do. The roles, you can't, It's very difficult to do more than one thing at a time. And it's like being a producer and the engineer on the project. If you find yourself engineering, it means you're not paying attention and producing. So you have to sort of engineer on autopilot while you're producing and every once in a while kind of check in and say, wow, does this not sound like shit? Okay, cool. It doesn't sound like shit. Let's keep going. And so it's... It is difficult to do that. And I think with musicians, it's the same thing. When they're actually playing, they're not thinking about the mic. And if they are, they shouldn't be.
0: Yes, I have absolutely, I have really sympathize with the distinction you are making there between, let's maybe think about it as the science of engineering versus the artistry of creating music. And uh, here in this in this studio, in this business, what we do is we compose music bespoke for, uh, for picture, for advertising. And... Um, Often there can be a moment of tension where, because you know, you're know you on Cubase, we use Cubase, you're making everything from scratch, you're putting instruments in in a musical way and then having to quickly mix on the fly. And what can often happen is uh, that someone who hasn't been present for the whole session can come in with kind of this fresh perspective, not being in in the hole of you know staring at the door and uh, thinking about the dynamics and the, and the EQ and all of that. And you know, they can have a much clearer perspective of what's going on musically. Uh, but I can't see a way around that when we're in this you know, modern era of you know, you're producing and engineering at the same time. It, would, would you recommend, let's say, not thinking too hard about, about mixing when you're just trying to make the music and then uh, run everything off as, as stems and do it afterwards? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know about the running
1: everything off as stems part, but I definitely, when I am producing and recording and I know I'm going to mix, there is a very definite break between the production process and the mixing process. Um, I'm getting sounds the whole time to try and make sure that everything is what it's supposed to be, but I record those sounds. And the playback of the tracks while I'm tracking is ridiculously simple. Usually No EQ at all, maybe a compressor parallel for some drums just for a little bit more excitement. And then some sort of vocal treatment because the vocalist needs to hear it the way it's going to be. But that's the way you know that it actually works as opposed to start mixing right away. Because first of all, you've got the fact that you start to focus on mixing and you're not thinking about what to create to solve a problem. So while you're recording, you solve a problem by coming up with a different arrangement or adding harmony vocals or or an effect like reversing something, like whatever it is. And while you're mixing, you solve problems by adding an extra effect to make the delay tail into the bridge because there's something awkward about that transition or EQing something or compressing something. But While listening to the recorded tracks, I like that to be incredibly simple so that it is a psychological break between the two phases. And you don't always have that luxury. I mean, a lot of times you are just doing everything all at once. But that's you kind of have to silo those ways of thinking only because I don't want to be in the middle of a mix and decide I want to do an overdub. Like that would have to be something so big that it was obvious the only way to fix this is with an overdub like okay put on the brakes change everything about what I'm doing record this thing okay cool now I can start mixing again but if you're in the middle of it I think it's for me anyway it's very difficult to make progress because you can
0: just go in circles so you recommend to producers Uh, who are doing the 360, you know, producing and then doing the mix afterwards to definitely have a distinction between the two processes, if if for psychological reasons, if nothing else. If possible, but I mean, it's not
1: always the way you're working. I mean, if you're building everything in the laptop and you're not really working with a lot of other musicians, you're playing everything yourself and you maybe have a vocalist or even you're going to be singing. Well, there's no reason to not just be progressing towards the final product all the time, because why not? Mm -hmm. But if you're working with other people, I think that mixing is a solitary thing. So you don't want to do that while everyone's in the room because first of all, they're questioning what you're doing and it's just a weird process to mix with other people in the room. But also you're, you're wasting their time and you're making them get disinterested. It's like doing all of the drum tracks for a record in the first three days and then hoping that the drummer can stay involved in the project for three weeks while you do overdubs like no make sure that there's percussion to do or just do all the overdubs for a song each time you get the drums and spread it out and keep people involved while they're supposed to be involved and then when they no longer have anything to do they don't need to be involved because they already
0: know all right we're at this stage you're gonna go mix fine i don't need to be around now that's really fascinating because have you seen the um foo fighters documentary called back and forth no i haven't So they were talking about recording Wasting Light with Butch, uh, Butch Vick, of course, who moved an entire tape studio into Dave Grohl's house for it. And um, wow, I'm really combing my memory here. I think the guitarist is called Chris Shiflett, And I think uh, he said, the way we do an album is we do all the drums first. And that takes like, a week and then we do all the bass and that takes a week and then we do the guitar so when we start an album i'm thinking i'm not going to be playing anything for about a month and that sounds like if you know that sounds like not the process you would recommend
1: well i mean look recommend is a strong word <laughs> like <laughs> i think the way i think and it definitely doesn't work for everybody but look the thing with that is it's not like the drummer's going to get disinterested right because yeah. He and Dave are like the two, they're gonna be around the whole time. Dave's gonna be around the whole time. For Chris, like, I don't know. I don't know what that process is like, but I would imagine that he feel, it sounds like you would say that in the context of like, I wish I had something to do earlier on maybe, but that's just not the way that record was gonna get made and that's fine. I tend to track everything live as a band if possible, even if lots of stuff is gonna get replaced. But that's just me, and I'm, believe me, I'm certainly not gonna second-guess Butch Vig. And those guys. <laughs> yeah, no, know, yeah. And, and there are a million different ways to make records, and they've made records in lots of different ways. You yeah. know, yeah. so it's, um, yeah. There is no rule about what you should or shouldn't do, but when you're, if you are producing a band and you're not in the band,
0: then I think it's good to try and keep people invested in the process all the way through, that's all. <laughs> Okay, so here's a big question because some of our, a great deal of our audience, I think, will be people who are interested in the craft and already know about it. But some of our some of our audience come from uh, the industry that I work in, which is UK advertising, and uh, there a lot of this will seem like very niche and very specialist knowledge. I wonder if for the uh, more can't think of a clever way of putting it. For people who are, who don't know as much about it as we do, could you draw a distinction between when you're producing and when you're engineering? What do the two roles mean to you? Well, engineering, I think, is a very easy role
1: to define. It's the person who's responsible for recording the stuff, period. Yeah. Like, if it's uh, if it's somebody playing an instrument, you've got to figure out how to record it. So you're choosing microphones, placing them in the room, possibly involved in helping to pick where you're recording in terms of what studio or whose house, or are you going to stay in the basement? Are you going to go up and use a bedroom because you think it might sound better? Whatever that is. And mechanically doing it, but also running the session in a way. Um, and it depends what the production role is as to how much you're going to run the session. But the job of the engineer is to capture the performances. I mean, that's it. And that could be a very... Um, sort of A to B job, like, all right, there are these people recording. I will put up microphones. I will record it. That's all I'm doing. Or they could have lots and lots of input. They could be really creative in terms of the sonics. They could have ideas about where to put a microphone that would be really weird. Or what if we put tape all over this thing or put towels on the toms or whatever it is to sort of change what it is they're going to record. And that's all under the purview of the engineer. Whereas the producer, I think the only consistent thing that you could ever say about production roles across all productions ever made is the producer is there to have an opinion. That's it. They could also be there to do a thousand other things. They could be songwriters. They could be musicians themselves. They might just be a fan of the band. Yeah. They could. It could be anything,
0: but they're there to have an opinion. And you have worked a fair bit, at, it's my understanding you've worked a fair bit with one of the... Um, what would you say the most effective and least uh, intrusive or hands-on producers going, which is uh, Rick Rubin, of course? Mm -hmm. Um, And would you say he is kind of um, exemplary of the style that you were just talking about? It's about having an opinion, but not necessarily being hands-on and interfering. Yeah, well, I think that there's nothing bad about being hands-on because there are a lot of really hands-on producers.
1: So it's just a different style. And that, that was the point I was trying to make is that that's why it's so hard to define what a producer's role is because those are all valid. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with a producer being a guitar player and picking up a guitar and playing with the band and like being that part of it. And Rick just doesn't do that. But he's not, I mean, he's very involved and he has a lot of lot to say about songs and vocals and, I mean, everything. So, you know, but yeah, he's there for his opinion. And the the thing that makes a producer successful is that they like stuff that lots of other people on the planet like. If your opinion is only shared by about eight other people, then you're gonna sell eight records. If your opinion is shared by 25 million people, you're probably not gonna sell 25 million records, but you know, you get the point.
0: Yes. So is that one of the gifts uh, One of the gifts of a great producer is to be able to uh, be a, a, a realistic radar for what people out there want to hear?
1: Yeah, but I don't think, like you can never know what someone else wants to hear. It's like trying to say, oh, why is this a hit? Well, yes. you're going to get it wrong. So it's not to try and gauge what you think the public are going to want, but it's to be convinced of your own, opinion enough that there is a vision that you try and help the artist achieve and that vision could just be the artist's vision it might not have anything to do with your opinion but you're there to just help them do that or you could be shaping it or it could be your vision there's certain projects where the producer that it is their vision and the band is just kind of there as raw material and that's just different producers again but if you ever are doing something because you're trying to figure out what how other people are going to react to it, I think that's when you fail because you're going to get it wrong. You're absolutely going to get it wrong. You have no idea
0: what people are going to like. Yeah, and this, uh, like everything, like you said at the beginning, it all comes through experience. Uh, when did you first make the transition, you know, across the threshold from engineer to producer, to someone whose opinion was sought when you were producing a record?
1: Um. Well, I mean, really early on, I was doing stuff with friends, you know, and and this is like a piece of advice. When I talk to, to schools, it's always like, okay, so what's your piece of advice? And my piece of advice is always try to work with people who are in the same part of their career as you are. So if you're just starting out, go find some bands that are just starting out and you like their music and you will be able to work with them. And the expectations will be in line with what you can actually deliver and you can learn and be creative all at the same time. So I was lucky enough to have some friends who were fantastic musicians and I was doing that and then eventually got to produce some stuff for labels and things. So it was a progression that was just happening right alongside my progression as the Sinclair programmer turning into other things, the engineer turning into a mixer, like whatever
0: those progressions were. They were all happening at the same time, I think. So the um moving uh affair uh, well, you know, many years forward into basically just the last uh, year and a half. Uh, you mentioned at the beginning that you uh, have a label now. And one thing that would be interesting to know is what have the pressures been of operating a label since March last year, since we entered the pandemic? Well, the good thing for me is that my label has basically
1: one artist on it. <laughs> it's, so, I mean, I've had the label for 10 years. I've actually put out quite a few records, um, but I've been sort of the US distributor for some records from some Swiss acts. Um, but the main artist is Low Roar, who I mentioned before. I've made... I formed the label to put out the first Low Roar record, and we're about to put out the fifth one. And 10 years, and uh, Ryan, who is Low Roar, he writes everything, is actually able to make a living doing this. And that to me is like my greatest achievement in life, was to help somebody have a career doing this. And I feel like I'm a really big part of that. I mean, he's so talented, probably would have happened anyway, but it happened through my label and that's amazing. Um, So I haven't had the pressures of trying to figure out what to do with releases, but obviously all the work I do as a mixer is to do with releases that other people are trying to put out and to see people trying to schedule things. And also as a producer, like I, I ended up producing Marty Pello's new record, which seemed like a very odd pairing at the beginning, but was fantastic. And I'm really proud of the record. And I think Marty loves it too. He really got into some directions that he hadn't gone before and hopefully surprised some people. And, you know, that is a very established artist through a major label and trying to figure out that sort of release. And then I've mixed a bunch of indie stuff. And then the things that I've mixed probably right at the beginning or even before the first lockdown that haven't come out yet because it's an artist that feels as though they need to tour to promote. So they haven't released anything yet. So it has affected... Everybody in the music industry, and I've been really lucky because people are still at home making things. So there's been enough work for me to mix that I can pay the mortgage and I'm okay. I'm not going to complain at all. But like, if you think about all the people who work in live music, I, I mean, they've been doing nothing for the yes. last year and a half. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. nothing. So it's been
0: really brutal for a lot of people, but my label completely unaffected. <laughs> Well, so thank goodness for that, and yeah, yeah let's pray for a, a speedy recovery of the, um, you know, the, the the live music circuit because that's a a an entirely new issue that I think it'd be really interesting to tackle uh, here and now. Which is, you mentioned that you were able to um, facilitate an artist making a living from music. Um, how? Um, how, is how tacky question how easy is it for people to make a living making music these days well in some ways it's
1: easier because you can put out your own record and keep a gigantic slice of the money that you get right selling on bandcamp one friday every month or is it monday i can't remember they've been doing since the pandemic started you keep 100% of the money like they're That's great. You can use TuneCore and get an album out on every digital platform for almost no money a year. Fantastic. But the problem is that you only make money if people know your music exists. This idea that you can make the best record in the universe and everybody will know it is just not true. And it really, really sucks. And it's been the biggest thing that really I've taken from having my own label was thinking... This stuff is great. And a lot of the stuff that I put out earlier on was just stuff that I wanted to see the light of day. Like, this is great music and everybody should know about it. But unless you do gigantic PR campaigns or get really, really, really lucky, nothing happens. So with La Roar, sustained a really good career for years, like, but just skin of the teeth. And because I'm really lucky to have worked on um, some records, like you mentioned, Hosier, earlier and um i got ryan to be able to open for him on a leg of an american tour but it cost the money to do it so first of all let's dispel the myth that touring is where all the artists make money that is absolutely not true unless you are headlining small arenas or larger it will cost you money to tour There's no other way around it. If you are going far enough from home that you need to stay somewhere, you cannot make money unless you are the main act in, I would say, 2,500 to 3,000 capacity or up, which at this point you get 3,000 people into a stadium, right? So it's absolutely brutal. You don't make the money that way. Merch you can make some money. T-shirts, vinyl, but vinyl is really expensive to press. So there's
0: not actually a lot of profit margin with that. And it's very high risk as well, isn't it? You have to press a lot. And then again, once they're on the shelves, how do you move them off the shelves? Oh, exactly.
1: Look, when I moved from LA six years ago, there's another act on my label called Act Rights. One of the most exciting bands I've ever seen in my life. I saw them play a show at South by Southwest. And It was insane. And I immediately went and talked to them and then they recorded a record. And so I mixed it and I put it out and then they did an EP and I put that out as well. And I absolutely love, love, love this band. And I've completely forgotten why I brought them up. What was <laughs> what Well, was it that you, you weren't able to shift the
0: records once they
1: were- Oh produced? yeah, right. So, I mean, th- the very sad thing is we pressed vinyl and 500, because if you press less than 500, it costs so much per unit that you'd have to charge 50 bucks each. Like, it's ridiculous. So we pressed 500 and when I moved, 380 of them or 400 went to the dump because no. we couldn't even afford to ship them to them in Austin. And they didn't
0: want them because where were they going to put them? Wow. So, so, so I mean, yeah. briefly g- g- going over some of this that we've, that we've just heard there, um, can you help us just from an arithmetic point of view, uh, arithmetic point of view, understand why unless you're headlining these kind of venues, it's impossible to generate any profit on? Well, let's say, I mean, these numbers are going to be completely made up right now because I yes. don't remember the
1: specifics. But if you're the opening act playing like a half hour to 40 minute set on a tour like a Hosier tour, which he's very popular, but he's doing probably 5000 seat venues at the most at yeah. this point when they were opening for him. You're going to get. I can't I don't even think they were getting 500 bucks a show. I think it was much less than that. They have to drive themselves, they need fuel. You need at least one person with you. So it's a three person band and they needed one person to do front of house and tour manage and drive and do absolutely everything else because otherwise none of the guys in the band would ever have slept. So you've got hotel, you need to rent a van because nobody owns a vehicle that's gonna carry all that gear. You have to insure the van, you're buying all your own food because there isn't catering at these venues. And you're getting 500 bucks a night, but you're not playing seven nights a week. So you make zero money, but have to stay somewhere. So I think for most of that tour, they were doing like one hotel
0: room so that everybody could have a shower. Wow. And so it's, it's literally because it costs more to exist every day on tour than you can make. Yes. And and the exposure is why you say like, look, we could do a club tour
1: And it would cost us much less to do it. We could play every night. And they would actually put, like, if we could, we'd we'd fill up days off with small gigs. But sometimes there's an injunction against that. You can't play too close to another venue you're playing at, even if you're not the headliner. So sometimes that would be difficult. But you just, you feel like, well, all right, but we're going to play in front of 25,000 people in the next month. So that's worth it you know, you sell some stuff and you get a little uptick in something or other. But the thing that finally got us to this kind of plateau of where Ryan is making a living and doesn't have to really, I mean, we still worry because who knows what the hell is going to happen is Hideo Kojima, who's a game designer who did, I think, Gears of War. And then he did Death Stranding that came out a couple years ago. He was in a record store in Iceland and heard Low Roar and thought, Oh my God, I love this music. And so he did the first trailer for Death Stranding, which if you're into video games at all, it was like a major, major, major event. It had a low roar song playing in the video. When the video game came out, there were 21 songs from low roar in that game. And that quadrupled our digital sales immediately. Wow. Immediately. And obviously they've come back down, but they've stayed at a little higher level. And if you go look at any of the videos on YouTube of Low Roar Plane, the comments are full of Death Stranding brought me here. Death Stranding brought me yes. here. Yes. And it's, so it's that kind of, and that's a random thing. We had publishers looking for stuff. We paid for campaigns and trying to get the music licensed. It's very atmospheric. Beautiful music, you would think it would be easy to license. Turns out it's almost impossible. And when you say easy to license, you mean easy to sync on like film Yeah, easy to sync. Like why we should be able to get film placements. And so there were like a couple of small TV things. But anyway, so something that was not shopped at all, just a video game creator loving the music and saying, I'm using that.
0: That's what made this all work. And so you said at the outset, either a lot of money for PR or good luck. Now this is good luck. Yeah, and you can spend a lot of money for PR and it doesn't mean a thing. Yeah, have you seen artists uh, try to throw money at the pages, and they just don't ship records?
1: Yeah, I mean, most of them. Like, we did. <laughs> we we spent money on the first couple of low raw records. And... You know, fan favorites, darlings of some really great places like KEXP, which is pretty influential in the States for independent music and things. They love him and he can play there anytime he's touring through. And so hopefully with a new album, because they're doing stuff remotely, he'll do it. Um, But even that, like, you know, what do you sell? Another 16- streams that day like it doesn't amount to anything you need hundreds of thousands of streams to actually make those numbers budge one way or the other yeah and a hundred thousand streams is a lot
0: yeah so it's it's yeah really difficult a friend of mine did 500,000 streams on Spotify, and I think he saw zip because the uh, well, the, the 500,000 streams were because he was on a major label for that single. Obviously, a single deal, you know, nothing outside of that, and uh, you know, a fair bit of money got spent on the PR. Got on Radio One Extra, which of course in the UK is you know, if it's hip hop, that's where it's going to get heard the most. And again, half a million streams, and then. Psh, Tapers off, and of yeah. course, the if you're on a single deal and you're an, un, an unestablished artist with no bargaining power, your label will say, "Oh right, well, you know, up to a certain point, we keep all the profit." because we have to pay for... They have to of- recoup the money they've spent. Yeah,
1: it is it is really, really difficult. And I, I'm not one of these people who thinks like all the major labels are evil or, you know. No. It, it, every business model can work, but it's what you just described is exactly what the problem is. You can throw enough money at anything to get it visible. You can get it on radio. You can do all this sort of stuff, but it has to be sticky, Mm. And it's one of the things like with Low Roar, which has been amazing, is that the numbers aren't gigantic, but they're ridiculously sticky. Yes. Like My my distributor has said for years that he's never seen numbers like this. They kind of go up and then they come down a little bit, but then they just stay there. Yeah. They don't tail off. He could sell 300 tickets in pretty much every single city in the United States and Europe. And wow. Japan and South America at this point couldn't sell fifteen hundred in most of those places, but he could have between three and five hundred people
0: show up immediately in all of these places, and they would. And so, why do I, there are a lot of great venues in the UK where people can people do tours. We have Band on the Wall in Manchester, which is one of my favorites. And um, it sounded before like you were saying venues of that size, three to five hundred, uh, even if you're the headliner. Doing touring on those venues isn't going to make a, you know, uh, make you a multimillionaire. Not why, if you're not if you're staying in hotels along the way. Yeah. Why, why do people? I mean, stupid question. Because obviously, for the love, right? But why do people do it beyond that? How are they existing, or is it just all part of it?
1: <laughs> yeah. Look, it's all part of it, and 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 I could be totally wrong, and there might be this financial sweet spot where there's a certain size venue that you can tour and do that. But it it's difficult. They're not making a lot of money. But I think the thing is, especially for people outside the music business, I mean, you know, what's the first thing? Like when my local pub, obviously not a lot of music business people around here. When they found out what I did, they're like, oh, so you don't work? (laughs) And it's a joke and it's funny, but it is it is sort of the perception is like we're all getting paid to have a hobby. Yes. Which, yes, we are the luckiest people on the planet being paid to work on music, but... How many other jobs are there where, especially early on in your career, you're fine to work 16 hours a day, seven days a week for a year and a half on a record? I did that. I had seven days off in a year and a half working on a record. That's not because it's the dream gig and we're all just hanging out taking drugs. Like, we're working. So it is very hard work and it's very unknowable work, but we do it because we couldn't possibly do anything else. And I can only imagine what it's like to be an artist like that, because I don't have things to say myself in that way, but I just love helping artists say whatever it is they want to say. And when we get to the end of a record, I've had a a lot of involvement in, and we listen back and think like, oh, yep, still getting goosebumps there. Yep. That one makes me kind of well up a little bit. And, and your mom likes it. It's the first time your mom's ever said anything other than, wow, that's interesting. And, (laughs) you know, all of that stuff, that's incredibly rewarding, but it's, it's also, it's just what, I do like what the hell else would I do it is a career and it is a hell of a lot of work but just not in a traditional way
0: that's easy to see well, I just love that there's someone in a pub in uh, Worcestershire who told the uh, an engineer who's worked on Adele and the Chili Peppers that you don't have a real job. So. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's not just one guy. It's all of them. And they
1: love taking the piss. And they're yeah. dear friends. And we play cribbage. You're like, and that's fine. And I actually, it's one of the things I loved about leaving L.A. was that people don't care here. It isn't, everybody's like, ooh, what are you working on? What do you, you know? The whole like being in the middle of the music business can be very soul destroying in a lot of ways because you hear about all the work you're not getting and blah, blah, blah. So I love that they think that I don't work. But at the same time, when Marty came to the pub with me, they thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. You know, so it, it's, it's all good, but I love... Yeah, the attitude is very refreshing and it keeps you humble too because it's very easy to get wrapped up in your own self about what you're doing and how important it is. And however much you want to make the argument, and I would absolutely make this argument, that art is vitally important to human beings as a species. Yes. It's not keeping people alive that often.
0: No, I suppose it's giving people a reason to keep alive. Yeah, yeah, but you're not you're not saving
1: lives and yes. you're not feeding people other than the artists you work with, hopefully. And, you know, it
0: isn't that kind of job, but it is still pretty damn important, I would uh, say. Y- absolutely. And, well, most people, um, well, we can fill many discussions with most people we know with, you know, top five records. Um, and so, but... Uh, uh, the industry that we obsess over the most in our studio being the advertising industry uh, has the same insecurity that you just mentioned, which is to say that there was a, 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 a chairman of Saatchi and Saatchi at the beginning of the pandemic wrote an article with the headline saying, we don't save lives and that can be difficult to just live with. And so uh, what you may have noticed if you watch any British TV is that a lot of adverts have become preoccupied with kind of social purpose and you know saying, we are actually doing something to change the world and save the world a bit. Um, maybe that's just a, a... Symptom's the wrong word because it sounds medical, but maybe that's an effect of the era we're in, you know, because we're all so connected via social media.
1: Well... Yeah, I mean, look, it's the, I wish I could remember the name of, but it, whats it's like the pyramid of needs. And oh, you're you thinking of nothing, Maslow's
0: hierarchy of needs. Yes, exactly.
1: So when when you have to eat and find shelter, well, that's what's important. But as a privileged, I'm going to get myself in trouble here, as a mm-hmm. privileged Western white society, mm-hmm. we've gotten pretty far up the hierarchy. Yes. So we can be going after things for pleasure Mm -hmm. because we know we're going to eat. Now, I think what has happened is that the confluence of the pandemic and probably very specifically George Floyd as the kind of the beacon that the entire Black Lives Matter has been able to coalesce around and finally get some traction Mm -hmm. when it should have, well, hundreds of years ago. But anyway... I think what that has done is finally open the eyes to people like myself, who have a ridiculous amount of privilege, to say it's not cool to be that far up while there's so many people within a mile of you who are not. If they're on the planet and they're not, you have to try and lift everybody else up with you. And then you start to get to the underpinnings of why we're allowed to have the privilege we have is because of exploiting people. And then that gets very uncomfortable for everybody. So I don't have a solution at all, but I, I really think that that's why now you're not allowed to just revel
0: in wanting to have frivolous stuff.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's a good thing.
0: Yeah, I think, could all, who knows? It could also be a, 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 an effect of the fact that, like you say, our society, the one that we have both, across the span of two lifetimes, you know, been born in and lived in, it's been, it's been a an affluent society for so long that now it's no longer novel and, you know, we feel the need to address some uh, things that we ought to be addressing because of course my grandparents uh, were still, I asked my my grandmother's 93, I asked her about growing up here in Salford during the war and, you know, she would say as a matter of routine, uh, you know, my family was me, there was uh, Auntie Elsie and there was this, there was two twins that died at childbirth and then there was this person who, you know, got sick and died and it was just normal to them to have, you know, many families members and some who didn't make it whereas for us it's unthinkable to live like that right but
1: then if you really look at this country as a whole or the states as a whole there are a lot of people still living with infant mortality rates that are insane yes absolutely insane and yeah i'm not going to go further because i don't know enough about it but it's there look i i well no i'm not going there that's right. <laughs> we can <laughs> move on. There's, just, there's so much stuff to say about it. I mean, look, anybody who wants to know what the official stance of this country is on the history of slavery with this country, go get the life in the UK test that you have to take when you want to move here. If it's something you've done, I take it. Which is something I did last year. And you'll know everything you need to know about what the country wants the rest of the world to know about slavery in the UK. Wow and you don't uh, but you don't want to elaborate any further on that. Well, I can elaborate. The only thing that's in the book is that when slavery was abolished in the UK, then the UK was pretty good about raiding slave ships to free the slaves. It doesn't talk about the hundreds of years before it was made illegal. Just completely not mentioned. Wow. Yeah. And it's look, it's really difficult to write about your own history. Like, hey, by the way, we're all assholes. Yes. You know, so I get it in a way. But like that's you can't get more. That that is the official UK government's view of history. And I'm not saying this particular UK government, that book does not get updated every time there's an election. So this is not (laughs) a Tory thing or a Labour thing or. Yeah, it's nothing to do with that. But that is the government's official version of history. So you're um, officially a citizen here now. I take it I'm too. not a citizen yet. No, that's why I was not sure. I really wanted to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, going to get a letter. No, no, from I the have PM. my indefinite leave to remain, which I guess they can revoke based on this uh, interview. But uh, <laughs> yes, no, I, I'm in the midst of applying for my citizenship at the moment. Yes, uh,
0: amazing. Well, you know, uh, I'm sure you, um, I'm sure you'll be as you know welcome here uh, uh, everywhere based on what you said about your. Um, uh, let's say, enthusiasm for schadenfreude and British, you know, attitude towards success, which is that it's not really that important, you know. <laughs> Steve, Steve Coogan noticed that UK sitcoms really enjoy people suffering. Faulty Towers, you know, Alan Partridge, these kind of things. Uh, Dad's Army, I don't know if you ever saw that. Whereas US sitcoms, there's usually a degree of success with the characters. If you watch something like Frasier, the dude's obviously a millionaire, even though he's struggling in relationships. Do, have, what are the, some of the things that you've really noticed about uh, moving over here, that uh, you know, definitely mark it out as British, and then something that you you know like about that.
1: Well, I think that, and it's not completely peculiar to Britain, but it is you know very much a part of British life is pub culture. Yeah. And I think that there are a few things about it, and especially here, and I don't know, because I mean, I haven't lived in London since, I lived in, there for a couple of years in the late eighties, early nineties. So London is a totally different place than that. So I can't yes. speak to the cities, but pub life here, it's very, very common to see multiple generations of a family in a pub at the same time. And they might arrive together or they might not, but they will be there. It's very common for children to have their first drinks out with their parents. It's just a thing. You would do that, you socialize. It's also not that uncommon for families to still all live near each other, different generations of families. And part of that is the, the thing people sometimes make fun of, like, oh yeah, I went to live in the next village over and I didn't like it, so I came back. But, But I think that one of the things is, and I can only contrast this to the U.S. In the U.S., the drinking age is 21. Here, the drinking age is 18. By the time you're 21, you're not going out for your first legal drink, because obviously you've been drinking for years anyway. You're not going out with your parents for your first legal drink. You're probably not even at home. You're Mm -hmm. at university or even past it. When you're 18, you're probably home. Or you've just left home first year of uni or something like that, you're going to come back, you're going to go to the pub with your parents. And I think that, and I'm grossly oversimplifying though, but I think there is a thread of multi-generational communication in families that is fostered by that. Obviously, it doesn't always take Mm. and people are different everywhere.
0: But I do think that that is something that is very special about English culture. See, that's interesting because we went over to New York and D.C. in 2010 and uh, my mum pointed out, she said, you can't see people out out here. There's, you can't see as much of a preponderance of people obviously having bingey nights out. But then it sounds like maybe, from the way you're describing it, it's that that that, that culture may still be there in the U.S., but it's concealed because, of course, officially under the age of 21, you're not supposed to be doing it.
1: Yeah, there's definitely part of that. Um, Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know... Well, here's another thing, is all the pubs closing at 11, unless you're in cities where they stay open later. Like, everybody's getting a Vindaloo at the same time. Yeah. So it's a little different. Where, like, New York, I mean, you know, 4 a.m. is not uncommon
0: to have as a closing time for a bar. So that's just different. Yeah, of course. I mean, there's so much... That, um, we could talk about on that front because of course until very recently I didn't know you were in the UK. Uh, we've talked a bit about that and of course about the engineering thing. Some of the people who uh, regularly uh, tune into this podcast and um, in my industry and, and, and just in general would uh, be very disappointed if I didn't at least ask about some of those major, major mainstream records that you've worked on and so uh, maybe we could start with uh, you know 21 by uh, Adele which was just when I was 18 that was the soundtrack of the entire country everywhere you went someone like you was playing very loud somewhere or someone was singing on karaoke in market street something like that Um, what was what was your involvement how did you come to be involved in the project
1: well that was um a Rick Rubin production, the the tracks that I mixed. Obviously, they're all the tracks with Paul Epworth and Fraser Smith and the different writers, Dan Wilson. But uh, at one point, Adele went to L.A. to work with Rick and they cut uh, the entire record with a band and Greg Fiddleman recorded that. And at that point, I was mixing a lot of records for Rick. And so it came up. I mean, it was almost like a scheduling thing, like, oh, hey, you're not doing anything right now. Do you want to mix these Adele tracks? And at that point, she'd already decided she was going to go back to the original versions of some of the songs. So I mixed seven songs. And then by the time the record came out, there are I think only four of the songs that I worked on are on the record and the others were different versions of the same songs. So it was, it was very much just like a gig to mix the record. It was weird. And I was not that aware of her because her first record I think did really well here, Mm -hmm. but I don't think internationally it had exploded and certainly not in the way 21 did. So, I mean, obviously she's an insane talent and a fantastic singer. But like I knew way more about the guys who'd played on the record on those versions of those songs because I'd worked with them so often with Rick than I did about her. So for me, it was... Um, It was a mixing gig and it was great and, you know, won a Grammy for it. So you can't argue with that. That's pretty (laughs) awesome. Um, But yeah, it wasn't this sort of thing where as I'm working, I'm like, oh my God, this thing is going to be gigantic. And I didn't work directly with her. So it's a very boring story I have about it.
0: Well, you you said you knew uh, some of the musicians on it and uh, I don't know. It sounds like there were some sessions with some musicians and some sessions with others. I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, the, the Rick Rubin stuff, was
1: there was a basic band, like Chris Dave and Pino Palladino and um, Smokey Hormel was playing guitar. I'm not going to remember everybody, which is going to make me feel bad, so I'm going to stop <laughs> listing people now. And with some of those people, like with Smokey, I'd made a bunch of records with him. So I knew him really well. So and again I didn't record the record. So I wasn't working with them on that record, but I knew more about them as musicians when I got the tracks like put oh there's smokey like I believe it was smokey's idea to do uh, the cover of love song, you know, the Cure track as a yeah. as a bossa nova. I think that was his thing, like a really down tempo version. And she absolutely killed it. Like that's my favorite. That's my favorite track on the entire record, to be wow. honest. Um, but yeah, it was more that that was on it was a Rick Rubin record in the midst of, I think I worked with Rick on and off for 12 years or something like that. And was it Rick who brought you into the Red Hot Chili Peppers? Uh yeah, I th- can't remember. I mean, I think he was producing the record, certainly. I mean, I think my name came up through other people who were already working with him. And it was, I'd gotten a call to do some work on One Hot Minute and couldn't do it, which I was really sad about because I was a huge Chili Peppers fan for years and years. I saw them in 86 when I was in Miami. Um, and they were playing punk clubs at that point. And it was incredible. But then I came in on, uh, by the way to work with John Frusciante to finish up Overdubs. And that was like my first introduction to working with the band was John just walking into the room and like, all right, let's go. Not like, hey man, who are you? But like, all right, let's go. Like he had something in his head and like he was ready. Need to get it Okay. Okay, let's go. And so that was that was amazing. And then obviously I worked with them for the next few records as well, which was great. And so you were on By The Way and Stadium Arcadium. Stadium Arcadium and I'm With You and okay. the
0: I'm Beside You collection that came out after that. Yeah. And I'm sure there's no one's at liberty to speak about this yet, but do you know if they're going to do anything else now John Frusciante's back? I don't know. I mean, you would think so because otherwise... I mean, they make records. It's what they do. So, yeah, but I don't know anything. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm just... Well, all of my friends, we're all just sat with bated breath hoping for a tour so we can see that magic lineup. I liked Josh Klinghoffer though. And, you know, I, I thought Josh was really cool. Um, but, yeah, we're just... we're all desperate to see the, you know, the By The Way lineup. Well, and I think some
1: of the shows from uh, the end of the Stadium Arcadium Tour too, when Josh was playing, he was playing keys and and guitar as like the extra musician on that were pretty spectacular as
0: well, having both of them. Yeah, but uh, we were... um... We, some, me and some of my friends have this bizarre tradition where every Christmas we'll, we'll have like a concert movie don't know where it came from it just kind of emerged out of the void so you know we do shine a light rolling stones and we do stop making sense and we watched uh, Slain Castle and of course the, the guys were all like 42, 43 at the time or something like that and it was just the most energetic and insane you know uh, powerful sound you've ever seen so I'm always envious for people who've had that first-hand experience of being in the room when it happens
1: yeah Oh, they're they amazing Amazing. Yeah. I mean, every iteration of that band I've worked with is just, it's a joy to be in the room while they're playing is just insane. Yeah. It's incredible. And knowing, as I presume, have you been in bands before? No, no. I mean, I played trumpet and french horn
0: so no <laughs> there's no space for french horn on the next chili peppers album no uh, okay well <laughs> I've,
1: I've played trumpet on a ridiculous i mean not on tons but i have played trumpet on albums but it's always me and pro tools by myself in the room no one gets to witness Just that up a debacle mic, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah
0: yeah um okay so what about uh you were involved with beyonce i believe is that right
1: yeah yeah that was a very last minute thing um tony maserati was mixing the record it was a self-titled one the one that sort of came out by surprise on a friday and they were working and i think there were two songs where one of them they just weren't quite getting what they wanted and there was another one that like no one had even really had time to dig into and nobody knew when this record was coming out i mean nobody like i got a call saying hey man the beyonce record's out like are you fucking kidding? I printed the last mix like 12 hours ago yeah. and it was out. So we didn't So what, it know went to mastering in that time as well. They were mastering every single mix that we did in case it was the approved mix. Oh my God. and cutting them into the videos because of course the album came out with a video for every song. So every version of every mix was put into the videos and mastered in case it was like, yep, that's the one. Okay, album's done. So, but I came in very much at the end and just worked on those two tracks and it was great. It was really amazing. I loved um, No Angel, the vocal style on that is just so cool yeah and that was a that was a really cool track to work on but yeah it came out of nowhere in a sense and it was very quick because it all had to get done I mean I don't know that I was working on it even for two full weeks probably less
0: it must yeah. have been less but yeah it's great. The, um, the mastering thing reminded me uh, to ask, bouncing back onto a bit of engineering uh, advice, um, particularly for the less experienced engineers, uh, is obviously we're all um, advised to mix with reference tracks to keep you guided. Now, I've never been able to actually uh, ask someone so qualified about this, but I've had a suspicion that when you're mixing with references, if they're mastered references, that's going to be perhaps a little bit of a red herring. I don't know, I'm not sure, but you know, when you're making an unmastered mix, it sounds different, doesn't it?
1: Well, no, I don't leave anything for mastering.
0: Okay, okay
1: sometimes mastering will still do things and it will make it better and sometimes they do things and it doesn't make it better and you make them stop doing those things and sometimes they do nothing because it's done so the goal of a mix can't be like oh wait till the year this comes back from mastering okay you know you it needs to be done it needs to be completely finished when you're done with it there can't be anything you're like yeah i think that'll be better once it's mastered that's not a thing um, and reference tracks, I don't know. Some people use them and really do a great job with them. I, they confuse me. I can't do it. It doesn't make any sense to me.
0: Yeah. Why is it that that, that it doesn't work for you? Because I don't do it either. But I'm not a Grammy winner. So.
1: Well, it's it's what's the frame of reference like? What is it a reference for? If it can just be something to clear your head, that's fine, but that is the same as listening to anything or going out of the studio or working on a different mix or whatever, just to give yourself fresh perspective. But let's say you've got a record that you think like, oh, yeah, man, I love the bass on this track. Like, this will be my reference track for the low end. Okay, but you need, when you switch back and forth, first of all, it has to be level matched perfectly for the whole song, but also just for the low end. And that's impossible. So which one is it going to be? Because if the low end is quieter, you're going to think your low end's better because there's more of it. And like, it, it's so hard to do it. And also your brain is not very good at listening to different things and being able to compare them it turns out that the short-term memory inside the brain in the hearing mechanism is really really bad (laughs) you can convince yourself of anything just switching back and forth so to do it properly you would have to stop take 10 minutes away listen to your reference track all the way through take 10 or 15 minutes away come back to your mix. At which point you realize that the long-term part of your brain for hearing stuff isn't that precise. Mm. So now you've kind of like, well, hold on a second. Was that better? Like it just, it's almost impossible physiologically and neurologically for it to work. And I find myself getting really, really confused when I try.
0: Yeah, that's, um, that's really interesting to hear. You know, that, as you said before as you were alluding to uh, we can get drawn into thinking that this is a science and it's still an art it's still about yes. taste yeah if it
1: were a science there'd be a
0: plugin that would mix your song for you and it would be great and no one would ever have to mix again okay, okay. so maybe one final thing to go over before um uh, before we wrap up, have you got? St- have you are, you are you working today? Are you in the middle of a load of sessions? Or? No, 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 I'm all good, all good. Good stuff. Well, one thing uh, to discuss is uh, your signature plugins for Waves, um, because obviously, you know, um, you uh, have some. I don't understand anything about product development for plugins. I just see the end result. And we use Waves in this studio. So, what is it when you're designing stuff uh, for the digital realm? Uh, what is it that you're uh, trying to bring to the table that isn't already there? Well, the three plugins are actually
1: really different, the three that I've done with Waves. So, excuse me, the first one was about emulating a specific piece of gear. And it was was a plugin that they wanted to do. They wanted to do the Neve 1073, which is an iconic mic pre-EQ from the 70s. And... I owned a BCM10 that had 10 of them and they knew that I love Neve's. I'm a Neve kid, so I use them all the time. And so we decided to collaborate. And then on that one, my goal, because there are lots and lots and lots of plugins that emulate analog gear. And that's cool because there's something cool about the analog gear and whatever. But the thing that always bugged me was that the ones you would go to and think like, oh, wow, this is amazing, would have lots and lots of Character in quotes. I just made air quotes for the people just hearing audio. (laughs) But what the character is, is it's something that's affecting the sound that's more than you would think. It's some harmonic distortion or EQ that you haven't actually dialed in Mm. that you kind of get for free and you can't do anything about it. Mm. And that's true of analog gear. Like it breaks things, it distorts the signal, even if you don't want it to. Some people think that's a good thing. Some people think it's a bad thing, whatever. So the ones that are the quirkiest are the ones that you will initially say, oh man, that's a great EQ. But if you use it 30 times in the same session, you've got exactly the same quirkiness on 30 different things and it starts to build up and it starts to be like the sound of your mix is a slightly broken 1073. Yes. Like, no. What's amazing about the 1073 is the character of it, which is the EQ curves, And the frequencies that were chosen and how musical those are and the shape of the bell as it interacts with the low shelf, as that interacts with the high-pass filter and all of that stuff. That's what makes a Neve special. And that's exactly the same on every single Neve that's made. What's different is how much harmonic distortion there was in the preamp because that transformer was not in the best shape it could possibly be or it needed to be recapped. So my goal with that one, to try and make this a bit shorter, I realize I'm going on forever about the first of the three. (laughs) Um, The goal with that plugin was to give it the character of the 1073 but not have it sound like any specific one. Mm -hmm. So they actually modeled one that they had, and then we tweaked it based on all 10 of mine. Every revision of the plugin, I would listen to all 10 and say, okay, here's the thing that's sticking out to me. And we spent weeks and weeks just tweaking the harmonic distortion of the preamp part of that. Because it was like, okay, now I'm going to go up a click. And so I'm just starting to distort. And I'm going to put a Rhodes through it. Like, all right, what does that feel like? Then put it through the plugin. Like, oh, nope, 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 something weird. And I would just tweak and tweak and try and get it to feel like, not sound like the 10 in the desk. And then do the same thing with different sources at different levels and blah, blah, blah. So that's what that was. To try and give you all of the character of it, but not any of the specifics of a particular piece of gear blah okay so the 2nd plugin, parallel particles was because i use or used i'm not using nearly as much anymore but i used lots and lots and lots of parallel compression for the people who don't engineer i'm not going to explain it just let your eyes glaze over for a second and then we'll come back but The thing about using parallel compression is that the signal routing can be very complicated. As soon as you have more than one parallel process and you want to route one of them into another, to build that in a DAW from scratch takes, first of all, a lot of resources. To build the plugin as parallel particles ended up, you would need 12 auxes and then a bunch of plugins and sends between the auxes for cross feedback and things like that. And not only would it take up a lot of resources, but it's also complicated and time-consuming. And that's just for one instrument. You just wouldn't do it. So people will tend to build big parallel complicated things that it's like, oh, that's for the mix or it's for all of the drums. But if you wanted a different one just for the guitar solo, you wouldn't build it. It'd just be too much of a pain in the ass. So you wouldn't do it. So the idea of that plugin was to encapsulate all of that crap into something that only had four knobs. There are four processes in there. You don't even know how they route. You just know how much of that one do you want? How much of that one do you want? There's a bit of interaction between them. Turn your four knobs till you think it's cool and then move on. So that sim- was the idea of that.
0: Similar to the new CLA thing that, that gets his particular SSL delays into reverbs routing, but you know, routing emulation plugins, basically.
1: Yeah, yeah. Just just hiding all of that complexity and letting you just get the stuff you need. And I was really adamant about it having only four knobs. And that was a little bit of a fight, but we got it to the point where it worked, and that was cool. Then the channel strip, the Shep's Omni channel, was the opposite of that. I wanted to build a complicated tool with a ton of knobs on it because I wanted to use it, mm. period. I wanted this plugin to exist. So the idea behind that is a channel strip. So you can have an equalizer, you could have a compressor, you can have a gate, you can have a preamp emulation thing, you can have a de and those can all be separate plugins. And if you want different sounding things for all of those, then they would be different Plugins. So you could have seven plugins all chained and each one of them is in its own window. And that drives me nuts. And I would find myself not doing stuff because I didn't feel like opening up another window. Like I'll get around it a different way. Mm. And I don't think like I'm shortchanging the mixes I'm doing. It's just I wasn't doing everything I immediately wanted to do because I knew that the setup time would take me out of the moment And like, well, I'm going to lose my creative flow if I do that. So I'm not going to get what I wanted anyway. So we'll just blow it off and do something else. So I wanted to build a channel strip. And every single thing in that channel strip has character of something I like. So the easy one to talk about is the EQ. There are some bands of that EQ that are API-ish. There are some that are Neve-ish. There are some that are Pultec-ish. And there are some that are, um, oh, what's the other one? It doesn't matter, whatever. But so they all started life like, okay, I want this band to be like the mid-range band on the 1073, let's say. And now I want to change everything I don't like about the 1073 because this is going to be continuously variable in terms of the frequency. And it's going to go from 20 to 20K, Mm. the full frequency range. Every band of that EQ does that. So to build in the character of 12 different EQs into the EQ... And then the same thing with the compressor. There are three totally different compressors, but with one set of controls. So you can switch back and forth and actually hear the difference between FET compression versus VCA compression, as opposed to hearing the difference between this particular FET compressor and then this particular VCA compressor that the settings don't really match, but it's as close as you could get. So having all of that in one window and being able to reorder stuff, and then having an insert so you can put another plugin in the middle of it all, that was just like the ultimate one-window Swiss Army knife of cool-sounding shit, and that's what I wanted to build. And we spent a lot of time on it, and it's something I use all day, every day. I would say ninety
0: percent of the time, if I insert a plugin, I'm inserting that plugin. So you know, someone who starts with a uh, you know um, your timeline on your on your door, and you don't just apply a channel strip plugin to everything. No. No, I don't do anything all the time. As a matter, I have a template. Yeah, routine.
1: Yeah. I have a template, which obviously has a routine built into it because it's stuff, but I don't use all of the template on every mix. And I use, I pick and choose, and the template changes. Like once a month, I'm doing a save as, because I get sick of something, or I think of a better way to do something or whatever. So that is routine. And part of being creative is having a routine. It's color coding your tracks the same way. It's doing all of the things that are routine so that when you hear something you don't like, you can now do something that has nothing to do with your routine because everything else is being taken care of by stuff you're familiar with. So you can dive in immediately and be creative and do the stuff that's all one-off. So for me, it feels like everything I do on a mix is one-off, but Mm -hmm. the reality is it's all built on a foundation of things I've built before. Yeah, even though those things change.
0: Yeah, and so uh, one one question that I like to gauge because every mix engineer is different is: is there anything like a typical process? You know, does your do you expect a mix for you to always take the same amount of time, or can some of them stretch out and some of them are easy? Yeah, I have no idea about the time. Definitely mm. not. I definitely
1: have a way I progress through the mix. I mean, the session prep is very important. All that color coding and track ordering and blah, blah, blah. Where half halftime, you're not even listening to music. You're just doing it. Do you spend a lot of time organizing before you start gain staging and listening? Yeah. And I never gain stage. Like, I, what is that? I have VCAs all over the session where I can change the gain structure in lots of different ways at any time. So yeah, the gain staging is just like, oh, I'm hitting the mix bus too hard. Great, pull everything down. Oh, I'm not hitting the mix bus hard enough. Right, push everything up. And there are three or four different places I can do that mm. to very quickly hear what I'm doing. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not looking at meters to set things up that way at mm. all. And it's why mastering engineers hate me, but it's, <laughs> yeah, I don't pay any attention to that stuff. Because stuff feels different with different amounts of level going through it. So Mm -hmm. when you know the stuff that it's going through, you immediately like, oh man, I'm crushing the mix bus. I got to back stuff off. You just, you know that intuitively and you just do it. Um, And then there is a process in how I build the track up. I will invariably start with drums because it's usually the most tracks and I need it to act like one instrument. So I've got to figure that out first before I can do anything else. And the last things to go in will be the vocals. Now I'm familiar with the vocals. Like I listen first to everything and I listen to the rough mix and whatever. So I get a handle on what the arrangement is. And I know the job the vocals are gonna do. I'm not like saving it for last then like, oh, I didn't realize they were singing there or not singing there. Like I know what's coming, but the vocals go in last. um, And they are always the most important thing in the mix. So it's not like they're not gonna get care and attention, but it's just once they're in, all that matters is them. So you might not be getting the most out of the really intricate guitar arrangement in the second verse if the vocal's in all the time, because you can't focus on those details while the vocal's in. So I like to build the track up to the point where I think it all works, then get the vocals in. Then usually there's some stuff like, oh, right, well, with the way the backgrounds are, now I got to kind of rethink what I'm doing with this or that or the other thing. And sometimes not. Sometimes the vocals just come in and you tweak them and then they sit and then that's where you are with the mix. So, But that's generally the process. In terms of the amount of time, I have no idea because I don't work on one mix at a time. If I'm mixing Mm -hmm. a record, I work on the whole record all at once. And as soon as I am bored or distracted or don't know what I want to do next or don't want to do what has to be done next, close it, move on to the next song. And then I come back to it later that day,
0: the next day, like whenever its turn comes up again. Wow, it's really interesting to hear the, this amount of detailed information coming from, you know, someone, someone like you—no pun intended. Because uh, um, I, you know, so, uh, there is so much advice out there, There's so much information out there. Some people will say, "Ah, oh, the first thing you do is you." get all your clips in you just turn everything down to minus infinity and then you you know move you put the vocal up first then you move everything around it or the first thing you do is the drums and then you or you get the kick drum and the bass first but it sounds like it's much more fluid than that like there's no one way of doing things you have to adapt to each song
1: look at the end of the mix everything is in yeah who gives a shit how you get there (laughs) <laughs> it's all going to it's all got to get in at some point. So it can go in in any order and it just is what order can you build a mix where you don't have to go back and redo a bunch of stuff. That's the most productive and creative way forward. So whatever that is for you is how you should work and there are people who work with vocal first. Great. If this weird gain staging thing of making sure that the level is exactly something at some point in the signal chain, if that's what makes you be able to mix quickly and fluidly and creatively, you should absolutely do that. Mm. But if you find yourself in the creative flow and then look at a meter and say, oh my God, I'm at minus 18, I'm supposed to be at minus 16 at that point, like what the hell are you talking about? Ignore it. Ignore it. It doesn't matter. It absolutely doesn't matter. You can always change the gain structure later if it turns
0: out it does matter. And most likely it doesn't matter. Wow. Are there any um, things that you um, would... Is there any one thing that in particular you would like to flag up and just say to people... Uh, don't do it because you see people doing it. My thing is I see too many people advising that you pull, you know, a single band up to like, you know, 16 dB and sweep around in this kind of and then pull it down when you don't like it. Yeah, but I mean, most of
1: the time, you're not going to like plus 16 of any frequency. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, look, that's the best way to find annoying symbol frequencies that you want to dip out. Of course. Like, that's a technique for surgically cueing. Sure, I'm not a tone meister. I can't listen to it and say... 3783, that's the frequency. Like, fuck, I don't know. It's somewhere between 2 and 5K. Yeah. And I'm going to find it by turning it into a band. That's why my channel strip, if you hold down control and turn any of the frequency knobs, it just turns the whole thing into a band pass filter so you can find stuff. So yeah, you should absolutely do that. But you're only doing that because you've heard something like, man, the symbols are really harsh when he's on the crash ride. I got to do something about that in this section. Not... I need to go through, okay, the thing I would advise you against doing is soloing up every track and working on it. That is mm. ridiculous. Nobody listens to the tracks in solo. And I can give examples. There's a rival Suns track I mixed where if I had gone track by track, I would have high-passed the room mics because there was a bunch of bass bleed into the room mics for the drums. And it would have ruined the fucking song. Because that bass messiness made it sound gigantic and I never even would have heard it if part of my process was to go through every track and set my high pass filters to where I thought they should go. Take care of problems when the problems exist, don't go looking for problems. If there's a problem, you will hear it because that's your job is to hear the problems and fix them. That's what mixing is. You go from something that you don't want to hear to something that has nothing in it that you don't want to hear. That's how you know a mix is done, right? You can listen all the way through and there's nothing you would change. Great. So that's it though. That's as much as you can define the process and everybody's process is going to be different. But 99% of the time, you should just be reacting to what you hear. Don't do stuff because you think you're supposed to.
0: That's, yeah, that's really... Um... I kind of have a feeling that maybe we should get, you know, a soundbite for each, uh, let's say, you know, big name engineer uh, to, you know, a principle that they would nail the, uh, that they would nail to their um, to their door, and that's a good one. Uh, uh, don't go looking for trouble if you're listening. Don't you know. make busy work, yeah. If you don't know what to do
1: next, just close the song and do something else, go
0: to the pub, Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, when I, when you're allowed. Of course, yeah, and God willing, uh, sometime soon. When I asked uh, Yoad Nevo, you know, what's the number one thing, uh, and he speaks it off, it can, he can speak cryptically, he said uh, either the situation's controlling you or you're controlling the situation. You know, I think it'd be good if everyone had a little motto like that.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that, that I my interpretation of what he said is exactly what I just said. You are in control of the mix and the mix should only instruct you what to do based on what you hear, not because, oh, I'm mixing now. So that means I got to go do this. Like because I'm so haphazard in how much time I'm spending on mixes and I close them as soon as I'm done being creative, I don't have any of this time where I kind of catalog what I've done. And I will often be quite surprised with how far along the mix is or how, not far along a mix is like man i could have sworn i had the vocals in on this and i open up the session and it's the fucking kick drum is the only fader up like what how did that happen but i you know you shouldn't know you shouldn't be able to keep track of it and that will keep you from doing things you shouldn't necessarily do there are mixes i've printed and then as i'm printing i realize oh yeah there's no automation at all in this session like, all right, I must have done it all with Clip game and the arrangement's really good, and the performances are great. We don't need to automate.
0: Yeah. Fine. So yeah, uh, respond to the situation. Don't. Don't. Im- don't. Don't imagine that there's a routine that will help you every time. This is an art and not science.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: It. it the. The job of the mix engineer is to solve creative
1: problems with technology. How's that?
0: <laughs> that'll do I like that Andrew Sheps one of the most uh, uh, sought after mix engineers of our era thank you for giving me your time and uh, thanks for being in the UK I, I say to basically everyone who comes on this if they are UK based then uh, maybe we'll do this again we'll bring a couple of microphones and do this in the room great well I'm I'm here and if I'm not here I'm in the pub so. okay well we'll come straight to the pub and you know that's where we'll look first fantastic yeah. thank you well I hope you have a great day thanks again and uh, we'll speak soon alright thanks for having me cheers bye now